yo, yo, yo. So we're going to do a little education here. So January, which was the month we just had, the letter for January, the symbol in futures is F. Well, now we're in February, and it is February 1st. The letter for February is G. It's like Sesame Street, people. It is Tuesday, February 1st. I'm Guy Adami. I am always joined by Dan Nathan. You're watching Market Call Macro, where we break down the biggest headlines of the day through the lens of the futures market. Today's Market Call is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And if you haven't seen those Laird Hamilton commercials with him surfing for CME Group, you haven't seen anything. I'm telling you, it's badass. And by the way, also sponsored by Open Exchange because they manage virtual meetings that matter. And I'm telling you something right now, people. This meeting right now matters, Dan Nathan. It matters to me and you because it gives us something to do at 11 o'clock on Tuesdays here. But man, we got a good market here. I know that there's been a lot of focus on how bad your letter F the month of January was for the S&P 500 guy, Adami. But, you know, it doesn't exactly mean that the rest of the year, what was that saying that you guys used to say back in the day before there was like computers and, you know, the ticker tape was your thing. That's how you used to trade. It's like the way January goes, goes the year, that sort of thing. I don't know. It's the worst January since 2009. But you could also say it was one of the best Q4s last year, you know, that we've seen in a very long time climbing here's another one for don't, you big guy. please don't say wall worry i'm gonna leave i'm gonna uh, leave i'm gonna walk all right stick around stick around because this is a virtual meeting that matters i last night guy you didn't invite me to be on cnbc's fast money <laughs> but you had a very special guest on tom lee talk to me because he had a call last night so tom lee said we're going to see this mind-blowing v-shaped bounce in the market later this month of february and he gave three re- reasons why you're going to see this violent v-shape we put it on the screen but i will speak to them i'm not completely on board but here we go retail investors raise cash at the fastest pace since the pandemic began okay contrarian buy signal we'll see s p 500 daily rsi fell to 26 i'm on board with that the lowest reading since march of 2020 means we're in this oversold condition. That's a buy signal. And retail sentiment, as measured by the AAII, fell to the lowest reading since 2013. All these contrarian indicators, all these make him bullish. I get it. Now, violent is an interesting word. I'm not sure we're going to get that. But as they say, Dan, that's what makes markets. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, Tom often gets tagged with the term permabull, but 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 he also had a really great nuanced call, in my opinion. I know you probably agree with me. He thought that the early 2022 was going to be rocky. Well, it certainly was rocky. And listen, as a strategist, it makes sense to kind of take in all these inputs. He's using a bunch of different inputs, sentiment inputs, technical inputs, that sort of thing. And it makes sense. To me, I look at that short-term chart guy, I see a bit of a W bottom, not exactly a V there, but that's important. Let's look at the one year of the S&P futures chart here because these are levels that you tagged. You thought we would get back to those October lows on a pullback, which basically gets to about, what, 12, 13% from those prior Mm -hmm. all-time highs here, but now we're using a little homage to our main man, Carter Braxtonworth, who joins us on Market Call on Mondays, that 150-day moving average. You see where we are? That's where we paused. We found support back at those October lows. Now we're at that kind of 
breakdown level that you and I thought was important because that was the breakout level from October. So if we are about to get a violent move, you'd be very silly to short if we get through that 150 day and then get through that breakdown level because you know what, guy? 4,800 will be in the cards. So if you watch market call charts, which we do on Monday with Carter, or if you turn into our Twitter trading spaces, we actually mentioned yesterday 4515 in the S&P 500. And that's where I thought we would get back to. And oh, by the way, which I'd love to say, that's where we did. And why did I say that? For a number of reasons. That horizontal line, the red line is one of them, prior all-time high top back in early September. And the fact that it's now the two, the 150 day, see, I was almost to say 200, but as Carter said, the 150 is more important, the 150 day moving average. So here we are. I think, Dan, we're going to fail here and have a test of that sort of 4,200 level. We'll see. That's what makes markets. But to your point, if you get a close a day or two above the 150, don't fight it. And maybe Tom Lee is going to wind up being right. Yeah, I, I guess the point is, is that, you know, you and I have been doing this a long time. And to be a long very, time. A long time. You a little longer than me, maybe a couple months or so. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is like, why do we kind of lean on these charts a little bit? Because they're the levels that a lot of other people are using. They're the levels that a lot of people, especially in the futures market, use stops, right? Or buy, not just, not just, buy, you know, buy stops if they're mm-hmm. short, that sort of thing. And once you get a ball, uh, you know, a head of steam or so, you know, shorting at 4,600 can be really painful on the way to 4,800. And I'm going to tell you this, if you get that one wrong, you're going to be covering at the dead highs because we're not likely to break out at 4,800, uh, 4, but it will be max pain. Do you agree, guy? No, I do agree. And I think the interesting thing to do here, if you're trading, again, let the charts be your guide. Let the futures be your guide. And it comes in the form of the levels we're talking about now. So there's no reason really to do anything here. You could find yourself sitting on your hands for the next couple of days, waiting for that breakout to the upside or a failure here at effectively 4515. You heard what I think. I think we fail. You other people think we're going to go significantly higher in the form of Tom Lee. I will say this. The market got bailed out by two things. Maybe some of the things that Tom Lee talked about. Maybe people got too bearish. Maybe those indicators got too oversold. But I'll tell you the two things that matter to me the same way uh, open exchange managed virtual meetings that matter. It was <laughs> Amazon, It was Apple earnings, number one, and Microsoft earnings, number two. That was the lifeline to this market. Now, you're going to talk about earnings in a second, but that's what bailed things out here, Dan. No doubt. You and I were talking about it last week. I mean, listen, that was a really bad setup. If you were really bearish, you know, down 10% in a straight line in the S&P 500 or down, you know, the NASDAQ was down nearly 18% in its lows, guys. I mean, 18%, all right? So if you were pressing the market last week, and we certainly were not on market call or any of the things that we talk about, at the lows in front of those earnings, that's a bad setup because all of a sudden, you know, we talk about implied moves all the time. Why is that important into earnings? Well, it gives you a sense of the sentiment. So for instance, Alphabet is reporting tonight, you know, the implied move tomorrow in either direction is about 5%. That's in the options market. That's versus the average move over the last four quarters of about 4%. So when those numbers get really out of whack, meaning the implied move gets to be maybe a multiple, which where they were last week of where the average move is, then the, the it's just not like on your side. You know what I mean? The odds are not on your side if you're looking to be directional. So again, going back to what you said last week about Microsoft and Apple bailing out the market at the low, 
goes, well, now we're in a different situation. We're not nearly as negative, right, as far as the sediment's concerned. We've had a 5 or 6% bounce or so, and now we have Alphabet, Meta, and Amazon. And what's interesting about these three names in particular, Alphabet's shown good relative strength to many of its peers and to the NASDAQ. It's down about 6.5% on the year, down about 10% from its highs. But Meta's down 20%, and it's down about 6.5% on the year. And Amazon is also down a lot. It's down about 10% and nearly 20% from its highs here. So when I think about the NASDAQ here, it had that same move that we saw on a near-term basis. It chopped around near those lows, broke out above that downtrend that's been in place for a few weeks. But it's a different sort of situation because on a relative basis, the NASDAQ 100, the futures in this case, have shown very poor relative strength to the S&P 500 guy. No question about it. And it's all about the setup, right? And those three names that we mentioned, and you just outlined it extraordinarily well, they probably set up pretty well in the earnings given itself. We've seen specifically in Facebook, it's very hard for me to say meta. I'll probably <laughs> never say that, but that's just me. And Amazon, which has just been taken out to the woodshed. You look at Amazon, by the way, you're talking about a stock that's gone sideways to lower, lower over the last 18 months. And just think about that for a second in terms of what the broader market has done. The fact that you really haven't had participation from Amazon. I think you believe this and I do as well. I think Amazon in the second half of this year is going to be a huge story. The question is, Have we taken enough off the top over the last couple weeks, specifically over the last month and a half or two months, to make this setup really interesting in earnings? The more interesting chart to me, Dan, is this longer-term chart, because I think this tells the story. Again, we traded through those support levels that we had in early October, significantly through them, to your earlier point. The question is that you have to ask yourself, are we going to get back to the 150, 150-day moving average? And are we going to do that in the form of the earnings that we just talked about? Is that going to be the impetus to get us back there? And what happens if we do? I don't know the answer, but I do think if we get back there, I think you fade it in a major way. But that's just me. No, I I agree with that, too. And I mean, listen, we're kind of in no man's land, if you will, right now. And it doesn't really make a sense until we get more data on what the kind of economic outlook looks like. We have the January jobs report that's coming out this Friday. But when I think about these tech earnings in particular, you know, we've had that bounce off of extreme bearishness over the last week or so. I'll tell you this. If any one of those names, and Amazon's probably the most likely one, if they were to disappoint on guidance, they're going to go back and they're going to test those prior lows. And let me tell you something. If there is anything that doesn't look good in that Facebook report, that's mm-hmm. also going through the lows. The one that is likely to get bought on any weakness, if it's not bad guidance, is obviously the alphabet. Because on a valuation basis, I think that's one that people feel comfortable with. That being said, Facebook, which you've mentioned on many occasions, other than you know the products and some of the kind of sentiment around them, you know that's a really reasonable valuation too. But listen, here's the deal. Those three companies really aren't going to tell us a whole heck of a lot about how the economy is doing because they are, they are their own economies. But well, let's go to this next kind of slide here, guy, because this is a tweet storm from David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research. So this hold on one sec. Just yeah. gonna, I, I, I'm sorry to do this, but yeah. you need three or more tweets to make it a storm. And it's less than three <laughs> a thread. I, I'm curious because I want to learn, Dan. Please help. You me. know what, guy? That's a really good point here. And I think what's going on, maybe, maybe he's probably still threading but we're just busy doing this virtual meeting that matters so we don't you know we're not able to do them real time so this feels like a thread here david you know 
Also, again, he's like the opposite viewed by many people on the street, you know, viewed as a perma bear. And that's actually not the case. I find his work very thoughtful and very useful, especially when most people are in that perma bull camp. Let's figure out what the bear case is. I'm just going to go through these really quickly, Guy. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. The new Fed Rantra is how much stronger the economy is than 2015. He doesn't believe so if he's just looking at the employment. The claim from the Fed now is how great the economy is during, again, 2015. I don't know why he's really focused on 2015, but he's talking about the GDP there. I guess in general, you see the points that he's making. I'm in the same camp, man. If we did not have these trillions of dollars of fiscal and monetary stimulus over the last, let's say, two years ago, this is a bad economy. This is not a well-functioning economy. And we see deceleration on many of this data here. What's your take here? I don't want to get political, but obviously the prior administration talked about it being the best economy in the history you know, of our nation. And maybe in the history of the world, they would use those types of terms. And it's complete horse hockey. I mean, the reason why it was being masked by everything that Rosie's just pointing out now, it was being masked by a Federal Reserve and stimulus that was just basically covering all the bad things up. And now we're trying to figure out where we would be but for that. And Rosie lays it out right here in this tweet storm. So I agree with them. The question is, what's going to happen to the market as we try to extricate ourselves from the situation that we've gotten ourselves in over the last 13 years? I don't think it's particularly good. Can they thread that needle? I don't think so, but that's what we're learning right now. I think Rosie makes a great point in just putting it out there with real numbers and letting people make the decisions. You know, we can talk in platitudes all you want. The reality is this economy is not nearly as strong as the numbers suggest. Yeah. So he talks about handouts and, you know, that's one way to put it. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, I'm not, you know, as far as a lot of that fiscal stimulus was concerned, I thought it made sense. We were in a black hole. We had never been, you know, experienced a global pandemic like that. And and, in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. they avoided, you know, what might have been a depression or something like that. But you and I are in both agreement that they just kind of kept their pedal to the metal for way too long there. And, you know, you've had a really good call on yields and the the yield move in the 10 year and the two year, you know, over the last few months has been really interesting because, you know, we have this 10 year that like seems to be making this little flag right at the prior highs from a year ago at this time, or maybe about March or so. And at the time then we were trading at, you know, one year highs in that 10 year U.S. Treasury yield because of the idea that maybe we were going to be coming out of this pandemic sooner than people thought and the, the you know economy was going to reflate. But it can't get through there, guy. It's kind of stuck there. And I'm mm-hmm. just curious, like, what is that telling you? I know we're going to talk about the two in a second here. What is it telling you about the 10 years stuck at 1.8? Tells me as much as inflation is a concern, slower growth is more of a concern and it's manifesting itself here in the 10 year. Now, I understand there's a relative thing here as well in terms of this comparison to other countries. So at 1.7 or 1.79, are our yields attractive as opposed to other countries, developed countries? And the answer is obviously yes. So that keeps sort of a cap on interest rates. But what I'll tell you, I think the bigger concern is it tells you that maybe this economic recovery is not nearly as robust as people want to make it believe. Now, the next chart to me is more important because this is obviously the 210 spread, which if you watch Fast Money, if you listen to any of our shows for a while now, I have said, listen, I think it's going to 30 basis points. And I think it's going to get there in the realm of 145 in the two year and 175 in the tens or 150, 180. And you know what, Dan? It's getting pretty close because here we are at sort of 62 basis points or so. 
That two-year yield's going from 20 basis points in September up to, I think, 120 or so now. I mean, that's a pretty significant move, and I think it's got some room. So we'll see if I'm right. Now, what I will tell you is if we get to that 30 basis points and twos, tens, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be for all the wrong reasons, and I don't think the market's going to like that, in my opinion. All right, let's do a little math here, guys. So I like the, math. All right, so so the two-year yield bottomed out at like 20 basis points, and basically you get to 125 because you're basically saying that the Fed funds, the CME Fed tracker, it's implying a 25 basis point hike in February, or excuse me, in March, at the March meeting, there is no meeting in February, and then maybe another three, right, over the, the course of the year. So that gets you to 1.25. But if the 10-year doesn't go anywhere, to your point, that's reflective of the, the expectations as far as growth. So then the Fed is hiking aggressively on the short end into a slowing economy. And this is one of the biggest fears, and you've used this term on many occasions, stagflation. And that's maybe one of the reasons why the market is having its palpitations, the stock market, that is, right now now because that's when you would have to revalue stocks. If the 10-year longer rates don't go up meaningfully, but short-term rates do, and then growth comes down, you're not going to pay the same for some of these growth stocks. That's exactly right. And if you think about the historic PE for the S&P 500, you're talking about, let's just say for sake of argument, 16 and a half or so, which is this historic norm. Now, obviously that got accelerated and we talked about an S&P 500 multiple of close to 23 and a half, I think 24 at its peak, which is crazy. You're talking about a couple standard deviations away from the norm. I happen to think we're going to get back to the norm. And oh, by the way, this is really important, Dan. I know you like to say that. I think Josh Brown says it as well. But if the earnings portion starts going down as well, I mean, you think about that. So if the multiple goes lower, because it should, but then the earnings start to falter, you tell me what happens to the broader market, Dan. Nathan, well, it's, it, not a, it's, not, it's a what is it, Dan? I'll tell you what it is. A witch's a witch. brew guy, Dami. All right. Well, you know, one of the things, this was a big theme in Q1 of 2021 when rates, you know, the 10-year got to that 177, 178. What was happening there? There was a rotation out of growth, right, into kind of more economically sensitive cyclicals. Russell 2000, small caps were trading very near the highs at that point. They haven't gone anywhere. If anything, they've gone down since then. And it's interesting to me, after we had this sharp decline in the stock market, what am I looking at right now? I'm looking at, you know, like some of these hard hit internet names are kind of screaming today. Some of these kind of SaaS names, high valuation. So it's just interesting to see the money flows. I'm seeing money go back today into bank stocks. So, you know, obviously you'd think that they would like a steeper yield curve, but that's one. I'm just curious real quickly, where are you on financials? We're not going to look at any charts right now. I'm just curious, how do bank stocks do in this sort of environment? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they do particularly well. I think other people would argue the contrary. I think certain banks are set up for it. And I think what's happened over the last couple months is as we re-rated the market, I think the market is starting to re-rate banks and like what's the right multiple and a number of different things. The one I look at, by the way, is price to tangible book. And I think in the form of JP Morgan, they said, you know what, maybe it got a little ahead of itself. But I will tell you in this environment, I think the financials that win, notice I'm not saying banks, are some of the insurance stocks. And by the way, Jeffries, I believe last week, initiated coverage on a bunch of them. And we've talked about the reason on Fast Money dozens of times why a lot of these insurance stocks make sense. So if you're asking me, I think you're going to start to see relative strength, relative outperformance in the insurers and names like Blackstone. By the way, Dan, I have to give you 
Kudos, which starts with a K, I believe, which if you want to get into the different months, we can talk about the letter the K represents, but that's for the spring. You said that Blackstone would probably do a back and fill to 100. Well, I think it got down to 104, which I like to say is close enough for government work. But here we are north of 130 as well. So there are financials outside of banks that in this environment, Dan Nathan, make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, listen, just like the moves were violent on the way down, some of them were violent on the way back up. That thing had a 25% bounce or so. Well, listen, guy, we call this episode market called macro. You can't have a macro show and not talk about the U.S. dollar here. And, you know, this tweet, you know, Carl Quintanilla, just say it. I'm going to give you the floor on Carl because, you know, I could never do him work. Right, the way you do him right. Just give it to our audience right here about Carl. CQ, CQ is not CNBC. He is NBC royalty. Yeah. I and mean, you go, you know, that thing, the more you know, like Carl yeah. Keatonia is featured prominently. He's hosting the evening news. I mean, he's doing the Today yeah. Show. So I, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, Carl is at sort of the Parthenon of all things. The and Pantheon, I know it's not part, yeah, Parthenon, I know, I know, whatever I know. you want. But here, here's a little trick. If you're programming financial, you know, kind of news or, or financial punditry like we're doing, Amanda Diaz, if we're looking for something to talk about, she just goes to his Twitter feed and she literally will find 10 pearls a morning. Here's one of them, okay? And I think this was really interesting. This is from Ed Yardini. He's a very prominent strategist. He comes on CNBC, but you'll see him all over the web. This one was really interesting. You might be wondering why in the world we aren't bearish. Markets will learn to live with tightening monetary policy. We expect that inflation will peak within the next few months. And if and when that happens, stock investors are likely to rejoice. So this is really speaks to the dollar and the move that we've just seen of late here. We had that breakout. But if you think inflation expectations are peaking, then the dollar should come in because that would probably leave you with a less hawkish fed do you agree with that guy yeah, i do i do and 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 then and then investors just kind of learn to deal with a, a normalized interest rate level that is well below the peaks of the last couple cycles okay i agree you know it's funny you're gonna think i actually disagree i agree with everything he just said yeah. and i think the market will learn to deal with it and by the way i think the market would have learned to deal with it in the fall of 2018 if that fed had allowed it to but that's a different conversation in the meantime how do we get to the point that he's talking about rejoice? I think it's going to be some pain before the market starts to rejoice. And if you watch Fast Money or listen to our shows, I've said for a while, I think the back half of this year is going to be extraordinary. I think getting there is going to be extraordinarily painful and problematic. So although I do think we're going to be rejoicing, I think it's going to take some time to get to that point. Now, in terms of the dollar, the dollar's been going sideways here. You had that obviously blip higher, but it's been going sideways effectively if you look since the fall, since October, November. Why is that? Because other central banks are starting to get their act together as well. Again, all these things are relative. And when you talk about the DXY, the Dixie here, I think 60% of it or so is comprised by what, Dan Nathan? As you know, the euro. The euro. Things, they're trying to get their house in order. And we're trying to get our house in order. They sort of cancel each other out. And that's exactly what you're seeing in this chart. Yeah, I would just say, though, the guy, this is a very constructive chart. You know, you hold that uptrend, even if you were to back and fill back towards, you know, that 95 level or so, you don't give up on that thing yet until it meaningfully breaks it to the downside. And I would also say, if you want to rejoice about stocks in, in this 
you know, scenario that Ed Yardini lays out, well, a lower dollar would certainly be additive if you think about, you know, what percentage of kind of our multinationals of their sales they get from outside the U.S. Well, here's another one, guy, because like I said, you kind of suck me in. You and Danny Moses, our partner on our podcast Demo. on the tape. Demo, as you like to call him, on this gold, okay? And it had nothing to do. We're going to talk about the Bitcoin in a second, but gold, okay? And this one, I got to tell you, pretty constructive chart for the most part if you're more focused on the uptrend than you are the downtrend here but tension is building and you see that and i see that and something's got to give and it's likely to be something fundamental so on what scenario do you think it breaks out versus break down and i know you think it breaks out but i'm just curious all these risk assets that we just talked about what has to happen for it to break out to the upside you know when i was you know back in the 80s and the 90s we used to go to sparks and the day of those dinners i used to lick my lips because i'd be so excited and you know i find myself licking my lips talking about gold because this is the pennant formation that we've been waiting for now you know what i think i think we're about to break out to the upside in a violent way, to use a word that Tom Lee used last night and we talked about earlier in this show. This chart suggests exactly that, but let the chart be your guide. I've said this a thousand times over the years. Gold's not a story until it is. Inflation obviously is a story. Why hasn't gold caught up? I can't answer that, but I think it's just a matter of time. And with each passing day, that pennant formation gets tighter and tighter. It has to be resolved. I think it's going to be resolved to the upside. I think you have a different view. Yeah, well, I, I guess going back to that comment by Yardeni, if inflation were to top out soon, and one of the reasons why I kind of bought into your near-term bullish thesis was that if that was wrong, if we continue to see really hot CPI and really hot inflation readings, and you are right about $100 crude oil, and you know some of these other kind of inputs that, that go into you know a whole host of just kind of the pricing components here, then gold should work. But if it can't work here, guy, it's never going to work because we're not going to have CPI at 7% a year from now. You know what I mean? And that's my only take. And listen, I have you know a bullish trade on right now. It's not working. And I'm thinking about cutting the cord a little bit because I feel like if we start getting soft inflation readings, gold's going back. Next stop, it's going to be, I don't know, 1600 to the downside. Uh, listen, there's, there's clearly an opportunity over the next couple months when this thing breaks to the downside and you're going to go back and sit and do an I told you so. Right. And I will take it. Listen, but, you know, again, I think that's what makes markets. I'm going to stay bullish gold. I think central banks have been hoarding the physical metal, and I think it's just a matter of time before it manifests itself into the price. And you mentioned Hot in the City, by the way. A great Billy Idol song, Dan Nathan. Back to you. All right. So we, so we can't talk about gold in 2022, guy, and not talk about the Bitcoin. And yeah, earlier, we can, I, I guess sure. it, was, it was about a week ago. You sat down with Michael Saylor. He's the CEO of MicroStrategy, which is a software company. But very interestingly, and you've had a number of what I thought very informative and educational conversations with Michael over the last year or so about why he is converting his company's balance sheet and he has the board buy-in and he has shareholders buy-in and he is basically buying a shit ton of bitcoin if, is that is that a technical term there well, he's buying I've... he just bought another 25 bitcoins for worth you know or 25 million dollars worth of bitcoin here so he's got a lot of them 125,000 that whole interview is on our youtube page at risk Versal media give us a little sense of like what was your takeaway you, that was like what 45 minute conversation yeah 45 minute conversation did it in miami I asked him to come down and he you know he was more than happy to do it and it was a really fascinating 45 minutes basically in a nutshell 
Companies that hold cash on their balance sheet, they think they have an asset, they have a liability. He came to that conclusion a couple of years ago. And again, he's not in this for the moves from 25,000 to 60,000 or from 60 back to 30, which, by the way, we've seen a number of times. And I don't think it necessarily matters his average price, although it may to the shareholder, but it's either side of 30,000. What I'll say is this. He sees a scenario over the next five to 10 years where the market cap of crypto is north of that of gold, and he thinks it goes significantly higher. And there are a number of different models suggest the right price for Bitcoin is somewhere between 65000 and 180000 but he's fishing in a much different pond. You know, he thinks this is transformative. He doesn't look at it as currency. He thinks a lot of people make that mistake calling Bitcoin currency. He looks at it as property, and when you think about it through that lens, maybe it does make more sense than I'm giving him credit for. Yeah, no, listen, you know, he gets a lot of heat for a whole host of reasons because I think a lot of people don't understand why he's using a publicly traded company's balance sheet to do it. But there are very few people out there right now who are spending as, as much time as he has on it, investigating it, talking to people about it. So he's putting his money where his mouth is. And again, you know, with this crypto asset, the, see what I just did there, guy? I didn't call mm-hmm. him crypto you-know-whats. I called him crypto assets. He has the, the this is like maybe the, first inning. Uh, you know, we're 10 years into this experiment or so. I'm not telling you I'm all in on Bitcoin in particular, but I do find it pretty interesting. I just say this, you know, we had Brian Kelly of BKCM. He's our friend from Fast Money on Market Call a couple weeks ago. And we talked about, you know, different ways that individuals, he runs a, a crypto asset fund, how different individuals might want to be get involved in this. And obviously you can open a Coinbase or a Gemini account or this or whatever. You can buy a little bit of a spot and you can start to track it. But the CME, and, and again, I think this is really important for people. You know, if you have, you know, whatever brokerage account and you have a futures access to it, the CME has e-minis and you can set stops in it. So if the volatility is the thing that makes you nervous, trading futures to get that exposure and also short exposure, you may not just, you may be on the other side of Sailor, but you can use these products and you can set stops. And I think that's really important. Let's look at this one year um, chart of the, of the futures um, that is listed on the CME here. You look at that very steady downtrend guy. It is sharp to the downside. And let me tell you something, if it can't get through right here, You got to think that those lows from June and July are kind of in the sights. I'm just curious from a technical standpoint, what do you see here? You know, a few weeks ago, somebody asked me, where should she, in this case, should she get into Bitcoin? I said 31,000. And the reason I said that is for that horizontal green line exactly. And it got close. I think it traded down to 33 and change. Obviously not close enough. What do I think here? These lines tell it all. You know, if we break this downtrend line, which we're right around now here, Dan, at 38,000, I think the next stop is the 150-day or so, move, or the 200-day moving average, I think in this case, of 47,000. Let's just round it up. So I think that's what happens. If we fail here, what happens? I think we test that 29, 30,000 level, which we last saw over the summer. And I think it's interesting you mentioned futures real quick. Futures, by the way, are their own asset class. And that's a different show, and we'll do that. But I think people should understand the power of futures, and that's why we're doing the show. By the way, Dan, earlier I mentioned that Open Exchange is our, one of our sponsors. And what do they do, Dan? Help me out here because I know you know the answer. They, they manage virtual meetings that matter, guy. Well, there's going to be a meeting tomorrow that freaking matters. And that comes in the form of, <laughs> you see what I did there? You see what I, I see. did there? I, That's I, pretty I good, right? Yeah, OPEC yeah. Plus, brother. And, you know, I will tell you, you know where I stand on this one. Now, a lot of people say OPEC doesn't matter anymore, not nearly like they did 15, 20 so years ago. I agree with that. 
But I got to tell you something. They don't matter as much as they did, but they still matter. And I think you're going to see some bullish rhetoric come out of here. And the geopolitical stuff that's going on, the, U- the Russia-Ukraine situation is not getting better anytime soon. I think China-Taiwan will intensify post-Olympics, which, by the way, I think start at the end of this week. So there are a lot of reasons still to be bullish of crude oil. I'll tell you one thing. If you look at some of the stocks, you look at these large integrated names. And I know you've been bullish not only on the commodity, but also the stocks and, and also in the services in particular. But look at what's gone on in Exxon, guy. It just broke out at like 66 or so. It is up 6% today. It's trading above 80. And so it is interesting that the stocks at least the large integrated ones, where the sentiment has not been great for a very long time, are just blowing out. I know Chevron had a difficult number the other day. The OAH, the services, which is largely Schlumberger, Halliburton, you know, that's still in a range. And I think that's kind of interesting. I'm just curious, like, do you think we're going to make a straight shot? You look at that crude chart here. We're above those prior highs that we had a very sharp decline on, you know, into mm-hmm. that SBR release and into the Omicron sort of thing. You think we're a straight line from like 88 up to 100 bucks from here? Yeah, I do. And I understand why people would say, no, we're not. And listen, this chart suggests you've seen back and fills. And by the way, painful ones. I mean, that last one we saw was a 30% move in a very short period of time. And that obviously coincided with the Friday after Thanksgiving, the Omicron being announced and obviously the SPR release. But we've recovered the entire thing. Yes, I do. I think one of the catalysts is going to be this meeting. We'll see. And your point about the OIH, you're right. At this 234 level, we're at the upper end of the range. We'll see what happens, Dan Nathan. But as they say, again, that's what makes markets. And that's why we do these, because it gives people different points of views, gives people to look at the market through the lens of futures. And this is a meeting that matters, Dan Nathan. Fair enough. Guy, last question. We'll get the heck out of here. Do you think this January jobs number on Friday is important? Do you think it's going to be a market moving event? I mean, like, let's just think about it. One of the reasons why I think the height of bearishness happened after that Fed meeting is that a lot of market participants took it that they were going to be a bit more hawkish, a bit more aggressive with the possibility of a 50 basis point hike at the March meeting. Now we've had a couple of Fed officials come out and kind of tamp that down a little bit. Is there anything in that January number, if it was really hot, is that the sort of thing that gets kind of rates moving higher and stocks moving lower? It's so interesting you say that. It's so fun. I mean, not that I think they root for anything, but in some ways, I think if you really ask some of these Fed officials, they're praying for a hot number, a strong number, because that will back up, that will reinforce their new stance of being hawkish. If you get a lousy number, so in other words, if jobs start going the wrong way, That's going to put them in a really difficult position. By the way, I don't think they're going to change their stance, but a lot of people are going to start to be questioning exactly the things that you say. Did they retire transitory at the exact top of it, and have they gone too far too fast? But again, that's what we're going to find out on Friday. So yes, I think it's important, but I'm more fascinated by some of the reactions that whether or not they ask these Fed officials their thoughts, what they're going to say. But anyway, Dan, that's it. We've gone too long. Thanks for tuning in to Market Call Macro. Be sure to check us out every Tuesday live at 11 a.m. And I will tell the folks uh, home Tuesday does have a D in it. Today's Market Call Macro was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group. Great commercials with Laird Hamilton, by the way. That guy's a badass. And Open Exchange. Guy and I will be back. See, listen, you know, I'm, I'm, you know what I did there? <laughs> oh, you did, did an exactly, anchorman. I did an anchorman, but you I did, did it on Ron purpose. Burgundy. But I read what's in the prompter. Guy and I will be back for Thursday Market Call Street Research oh, with Liz Young of SoFi. We'll see you then. See you then.